Hey everybody, welcome back to We Are Podcast. This is The Act Out, Season 1, Episode 2, David Jessup. If this is your first time checking out the Podcast Network, please head over to your favorite podcast app, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or iTunes, and give We Are Podcast Network a like. And if you get a chance, head over to our social media. All links can be found in the description. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at backslash We Are Podcast. And with that said, on to the podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Act Out. From open mic to the big stage, comedians tell the stories they've made. I am Ducky Wenzel. Today, I'm here with the crazy, the wonderful, the mysterious David Jessup. David, how are you doing, sir? I'm okay, man. Right on. Thank you for being here. Uh, David has performed in DFW for over a decade, having performed on the Wendy Williams show, which I didn't know, was the official warm-up comic for the Flipside and BBQ Blitz, worked with the Deep Fried Comedy Show at the State Fair of Texas, co-creator of the animated series Sea of Idiots, as well as host of Camp Slash Horrorcast, amongst the many other things he does. David, yes, thank you so much for doing this. Of course, we do Camp Slash every Monday night, so we know each other through that. We've become friends. It's awesome. But I appreciate you taking the time today to talk to me. So let's begin from the beginning. Where are you from? I'm originally from Fort Myers, Florida. I came out here in 96 with my rock band uh, that went by the name of uh, Huge Peter. That's an actual <laughs> name. Uh, we did like a mini tour in 95 and we came through Deep Ellum. And back then, Deep Ellum was on the verge of becoming the next Seattle. All these bands were being signed, Trippin' Daisies, the Toadies. And so my band, we all packed up our stuff from Florida and we went from being the big fish in a small pond to a very small fish in a kind of medium pond. Yeah. But yeah, man, I came out here in 96, uh, did the rock band thing up until about 2008, had to have two neck surgeries from rocking out and car accidents and stuff like that. So I couldn't play bass anymore. So yeah, I went from that to always wanted to try stand up and I started out first with a video sketch troupe called uh, Donkey Show, which was like raunchy, raunchy little video stuff. And then from there, a comic by the name of Damus Smith. He was in the troupe. He got me to try my first open mic at Hyenas in Arlington. That's what lets you know how long ago that was. Oh, wow. I also started doing improv at the exact same time at AdLibs, which was the, uh, at the time, was the most popular improv club in the Southwest. And then uh, that fell apart. And now I do stand-up murder mystery shows with my wife and I make creepy videos. Oh, yeah. They're freaking awesome. We're definitely going to talk about that, too. What was your influence? Like, you said you always wanted to try it, but were you afraid to try it or what was it? Oh, yeah. Definitely terrified to try it. I was mortified to try it. But it was one of those things where I was like, Damus really pushed me. He's like, you're funny. You should try it. But what I should have done, and I, and I didn't do it at first, is I should have taken uh, Dean's class, Dean Lewis's class. Mm-hmm. Once I did that, I, I started getting stage ready. But before then, I was like every other open mic comic when they start, all my stuff was racist and all the jokes <laughs> were below the belt and just disgusting, you know, homophobic, misogynistic, early, um, mid-2000s, you know, style of comedy. And I found one of my joke books recently and I was like, oh my God, that's awful. So just when I first full of pure hack, just yeah, all just, hack. Oh, career. so bad. So bad. But then Dean taught me to be truthful and be more honest about who you are. He's like, you know, whenever you go up on stage, you need to let the audience know who you are. If not, you're just some random guy. And so I started doing that, talking about my mom, my past drug use and being married and stuff like that. And so far, so good. So who would you say were your influences as a child? Who was the first person you saw that you were like, I want to do that. I want to be like that person. I want to get the laughs. 
when I grew up as a kid, my parents had all of Bill Cosby's albums, which I know now is kind <laughs> of like awkward, but I, I used to listen to them all the time. And then when I got a little older, back in the day before the internet, we used to have uh, kids in the, you know, on the school bus would pass around cassette tapes. And I got a cassette tape of Cheech and Chong. <laughs> and I thought that was amazing. And then as it went on, you know, I discovered Bill Hicks. I always really, really enjoyed comedy that had a message, I guess. I don't really have a message. I'm not that smart. <laughs> um, but I def definitely enjoyed his style. It's also Andy Kaufman. I know it's kind of crappy to say, but I always liked when the comic um, challenged or attacked the audience. Uh, I don't know why. I guess I'm just a jerk inside because people are coming out to have fun. But I do like it when a comic challenges an audience. You definitely um, do that. I, I feel like you 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 attack the audience a little bit. You you challenge them when you like to pick on the audience and kind of. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's years of audiences being incredibly rude. And then also, you know, it really, it really started happening during, um, you know, we had lockdown, the pandemic. And I started noticing, man, I was like, there's about 40% of this country that I absolutely do not like. They have made my life miserable. Um, they are <laughs> racist uh, jerks and I don't like them. And so sometimes when I'm on stage, I can kind of sense who those people are. And mm -hmm. it's not fair. I, I, sh I shouldn't do it because, you know, it's expensive going out to comedy shows, but I I've, been, I've been trying to tone it down lately because I understand everyone, you know, try, try to put yourself in their shoes how they grew up made them who they are and maybe if i grew up the way they did i would be who they are i would be yeah. a you know anti-vaxxer anti-science person i don't know so i'm trying to be less like that and and honestly man though the way my life is going now i'm doing less and less comedy and so i don't know how long this is going to last i got a really good job that i absolutely love it's a creative job and what i've been noticing lately is it's sucking up all my creative energy Whereas my other job was kind of a dumb job. I would go home and I would not think of my job until I was at my desk the next day. This new job I have, man, 24-7. I'm working on stuff after hours at home. And there is less and less time for comedy. So, Yeah, you definitely can get burnout on being creative. It, it happens. So mm -hmm. hopefully you don't reach that burnout point. But I think personally that you attacking the audience is a flavor of your character as a comedian and i think it's hilarious um oh, thank you and it, it it you do single out one person if they can't take a joke they're going to be hurt yeah I, i've had i've had some <laughs> and, and it's so funny because it's always the people that you can tell the people that complain about snowflakes are the ones that melt down the fastest oh nice yes you right. know they're they're the ones that always i mean it's and it's listen i never punch down so i'm never attacking a woman unless she's drunk and interrupting the show never attacked a minority. I always attack that bro white dude who, let's be honest, probably deserves it. And listen, man, if you're going to come to a show and it's you and your two bros and your two other bros are wearing vests and you're wearing a Hawaiian shirt, I'm just going to kind of, and it's so hacky to make fun of what someone's wearing and it's kind of mean, but sometimes it's just fun to bring out what everyone in the audience is thinking. 
we work within stereotypes too. So like, if you're going to dress the part, you know, you're yeah. going to get attacked. That's the <laughs> yeah. bottom line. And, and, and I, and I really shouldn't. I, I remember there's a, there's a great movie, uh, sleepwalk with me, uh, Mike Birbiglia, a great comic, but one of the things when he's starting off in comedy, one of his mentors tells him, I oh, just, you know, if you're having a hard time, just make fun of someone's shirt. And I was like, oh crap, I've done that. And then the scene in the movie is so funny. He sees a guy in the front row and he's having a hard time. He goes, sir, your shirt's ugly. And he goes, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. <laughs> actually very nice. I, I'm sorry. So it's it's dumb. I shouldn't do it. And I'm trying to get away from that. But no, it's also no, kind it's... of fun. That's why I like, that's why I like about the murder mystery shows I do is that those are improv and those are basically a giant roast for the audience. Oh, nice. So I get I get paid to be a jerk. For a couple hours. <laughs> and it's super fun. Like, I, I really enjoy that. That is awesome. I want to know, though, what was the first time on stage like? Because that's part of this podcast is kind of talking to the people who've never been on stage before. So I wanted them to know, like, what's that feel like when you take those two steps up and then you're in the wasteland of comedy? You're just on that stage. You know, there's there's a big debate in comedy about comedy classes, taking a comedy class. I've never understood why somebody who wants to play the violin would never take a violin lesson. Why somebody who wants to be an artist would never take an art class. Why somebody who wants to be a movie director would never take a course on film. But yet for some reason in stand-up comedy, people always destroy, I mean, just are so angry at the notion of comedy classes. And what I'm trying to get to is this. So your first time, my first time on stage, Hyenas Arlington, I get up there, and the first thing you notice are the lights. You get up there and you can't see shit. Sorry, you can't see <laughs> anything. You're blinded. And so all you can see is that front row. And so one of the things I love about Dean Lewis's class is he really goes over all that first type of experience. He gets you up on the stage at the improv. And so you're able to rehearse and practice your act with a mic stand with a microphone, you're able to get up there and see the lights. So when you go up there, cause there's nothing, nothing tells you that you're brand new more to the audience. When you get up on stage and you do this, yep. Whenever you, you start commenting, you start commenting about how man, these lights are bright. Yeah. Like, well, that dude's never been on stage before. And so what that tells the audience is you're brand new. You're probably going to suck. I'm already checked out. But if you see pro comics, they get up there. Do they ever, no, they never ignite do their set. And so that's what I, that's why I wish I would have taken a class just like for that piece of advice alone. So you get up there and that's your first thing is the, oh my gosh, I can't see anything. The second thing is the fumbling with the mic stand. You know, one of the things Dean teaches in his class is keep the mic and the mic in the stand. Don't touch it. Don't touch it. Because then now I, I touch it because I'm very frantic on stage. I'm, I'm always walking around. Dean's like, that's fine as you go along. But in the beginning, you should always just leave the mic in the mic. It's less noise. It's less the awkwardness of taking it out and unraveling it and doing all, which is all a distraction because all you should be focused on are your jokes, setting up your punchlines, your act outs, your emotions, all that should all, the audience should never wait for you to get ready. And so it just, and that's another thing I wish, you know, when people, when they first get up there, those are things that I wish I would have known about, you know, and I could have learned them, you know, by taking the class. 
but again, back then I was like, I don't need no comedy class. I'm just going to talk about how white people and black people are different. Dude, I'm telling you, it's crazy how much people really do crap on comedy classes. Because I'll tell people I took that class too. And most of the time they'll be like, oh, you didn't need it. Or, oh, he's a hack. Or, oh, this. Or, oh, that. And I'm team Dean Lewis all the way. So I'm like, no. All you got to do is look at the comics that are working and have made it in this scene. Cristela Alonzo, Paul Varghese, Mark Agee, Aaron Arnpour. Professional comedians that get paid to perform. Not all of them. But a lot of them have taken Dean's class. Tone Bell is a working full-time comedian, has had a couple specials, was on several sitcoms. Talk to him about Dean Lewis's class. You know, he came into town and he he will, Cristela Alonso, professional comedian, sitcom, you know, tonight show. She comes into town. Who does she who does she go to? She goes to Dean to work out her material. Yep. She goes to Dean for record. So all these people now, again, there are plenty of comics that have never taken a stand-up class in their life, and they're great and they're phenomenal. All I'm saying is why that, and that's fine. There's a lot of stuff that, that Dean teaches you. You're going to learn on your own, but why not learn it now? Yeah. You get know? ahead of the but curve. But you know what? It's, it's fine. If you, here's my problem with the whole comedy class argument. If you don't want to take it, fine. Just don't crap on it. Just don't bash it. Don't bash people that take it. Don't bash people that teach it. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. That's fine. There are bad comedy teachers out there, just like there's bad attorneys and bad psychiatrists. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not all going to do it, but all you got to do is look at the track record. Okay, I'm done with my Dean Lewis soapbox. I know. I love the soapboxes. You know that. It, it freaking rocks. You know, and the other thing I was going to mention, it's weird to think that you'd have stage fright because you were in a band for so many years and you were in front of people and even the lights got you the first time that you went up. So, it, well, it's it's different being in a band. In a band, you're a um, team. Yeah. You're a team and the lights. The lights aren't the same. When you're in a band, the lights are blue and red and they're not. I mean, comedy clubs is a singular or a multiple blasting white lights. When I played in a band, we never had white lights on us. It was always dark. You don't want to see what a band looks like. We're ugly. <laughs> um, and, 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 you're, and I was I was a bass player. I was I wasn't the lead singer. I wasn't guitar player. I was backup rhythm guy. And so yeah. and you're with other guys on stage and also. Here's here's the weird. I've always thought this was weird about music and comedy. In music, you go see a band, you want to hear the same songs over and over again. In comedy, a lot of times, once you hear that joke, it's it's not as funny anymore if you hear it over and over and over again. In bands, you can be a cover band to be incredibly successful, making a lot of money. I have a friend of mine that's in a back and black ACDC cover band, makes a ton of money. You can't be a comedy cover band. <laughs> you can't be a guy that goes out there and dresses up like Richard Pryor and does Richard Pryor jokes as a Richard Pryor, you know, tribute comedian. Right. Even though that sounds like a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah but it's, it, it, and that's the strange thing about it. But I'll tell you this much, man. When you get done with you and your set in comedy, you leave that microphone there, you go home. But as a band, you got to unload your equipment. You got to pack it up in the van. You got to drop it off at the warehouse. And then you have to split your money with four other dudes. Yeah. It's brutal. Yeah. But it's fun. I mean, but like you said, those are these are two different art forms, you know, yeah. and so the chicks are way hotter in, in music, though. Oh, yeah. The groupies. Oh, yeah. yeah. Comedy oh, yeah. groupies. Not so much. Oh, they exist. <laughs> no they exist, though. Groupies. Huh? I saw a girl last night come up to the comedian afterwards and I was like, whoa. Was oh, like, OK. Was it a headlining famous comedian? Yeah, it was a headlining. Famous yeah. Yeah. That, that's a big difference, bro. <laughs> when you're when you're a feature and opener 
You're not even, even though it, it will, it, this is interesting. When I was an opener, I never got hit on. When I became feature, I started getting hit on. No crap, because that's, uh, that's hilarious. I actually want to talk about that. What is it like to move up through the ranks, to go from host to feature to headliner? Well, I'm not, I'm not a full-time headliner. I have headlined a couple of times. Uh, headlining is, is very difficult because you're holding an audience's attention for 45 minutes as opposed to 30. That extra 15 minutes, dude, and also they're getting tired. Their checks are being dropped. You know, it's tough. And I got nothing but respect for headliners that are able to hold the audience's attention. And I have nothing for disdain for headliners that go beyond their time. There's nothing I find more disgusting, more infuriating than headliners that run light. It is pathetic. It is sad. It is you are screwing over the wait staff. You're screwing over your audience because people have Ubers waiting. They have babysitters waiting because they're told this is how long the show is. And your ego is so fragile. And you're so damaged that you are so desperate for attention. You don't want to leave the stage because you know when the show's over with, you're going home to your apartment or you're going to a one night stand and you don't want to leave that high you're getting from the audience or you're chasing that big laugh that you never got because your set wasn't that good. Get off the stage, man. Nothing. There's only two types of comics. They're the ones that respect the light and the ones that don't. That's it. Those are only two types of comics. And I, I hate the ones that don't respect the light because you're disrespecting everybody and you're selfish and you're, you're a jerk. hundred percent. That's what it is. And, and you know, and, cause you work there, man, anything more than 45 minutes, you're asking a lot. An Dude. hour is a lot. And, anything and you, and over you that, guys, the wait staff, it's time for you to go home, man. Yeah. You know, got stuff the to audience. Do. Audience, got to go home. We dude. got stuff to do. We got drugs to snort. You know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? So we got to get out there. So in fear, and, l- and let me ask you this, and I don't know if you can say it or not. Have there been times that comics have run the light and they haven't been asked back? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Especially yeah. if you're a host or a feature, if you keep running the light, you, yep. you have no place to even try to do that. that it's ridiculous. Yep. So when a headliner does it, it's their club for the weekend. They can do what they want, but we got a next show to set up. You know what I mean? Yep. We've got to get out there and pre-bus everything, which is annoying the guests even more because they're having to see my stupid face after check drop. They don't want to see me anymore, especially after I sat down that $150 tab. I didn't know they racked up. You know <laughs> I mean? And then check drop is its own thing. It's a beast of its own making because it changes the environment of the room and the one thing i can't stand is when headliners mention check drop i think it's unprofessional Uh, it is and unless you can make a very good joke out of it like dl hughley says he goes gratuity i didn't order no gratuity that's a pretty decent joke based Mm -hmm. upon that like it's making fun of it i mean that that check drop is that's when you start doing crowd work you know, is that, because, is that what I was going to ask? What's your answer to it? Crowd yeah, work? yeah, it's it's crowd work because jokes aren't going to land because, you know, comedy is built on listening and rhythm and timing. And when the checks are being dropped, it messes up all three of those things. So at that point, what you do for I mean, for me, what I do, I don't engage the person that's actually writing the numbers down. I engage people that already have written their thing out. I kind of keep an eye on it because, you know, not everyone's going to be writing the amount and signing the check at the exact same time, you know? So you kind of like ebb and flow and try to pick people that aren't and kind of engage them. And then you kind of wait until the chaos is done and then you get back into it. And everyone's different. What's your go-to crowd work? What do you ask questions or do you point out like, Um, I I try, I try to stay away from, Hey, what do you do for a living? That's right. That's Hey, (laughs) Hey, where'd you guys meet? I, I really don't like that. It, it's just, and, and and honestly, one of the main reasons why I don't like it is as an audience member, you've heard it a thousand times. So what I usually like to do, and this is what I always do before I go on stage, I always look at the audience. 
I watch them as other comics are performing and I start seeing patterns. I start seeing these people together. Maybe the comic had asked him and they have been dating. And so I'll piggyback off of that. Or these people over here are in a group. And so they obviously work together. Or these people over here, like the one of my funnest times was that I told you before, three dudes came out, two were wearing vests, one wasn't. So, you know, you just kind of like, did they not let you know ahead of time? <laughs> like, did you piss them off? And they're like, you guys usually go out in free matching vests, but you did something wrong and they lied to you and said to wear, because a, 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 he had like a cowboy shirt on, you know, so stuff like that. And things like that, the audience also sees it. And so they're laughing because they're kind of, sometimes they think the same thing. Yeah, I try to stay away from the typical, how'd you meet? What do you do for a living type of stuff? Because that's, that's so tired. And it's also a danger because whenever you start asking open-ended questions, you offer the ability for hecklers to come in. Yes, there, there is a, it's an interesting thing because you can ask rhetorical questions like, you guys ever been mistaken for working at a place you don't work at? You know, that's a simple yes or no. But if you start asking, where do you work at? Then it becomes, well, I work at Target, but I just lost my job. So now I'm working at Best Buy, but it's only on a two week period because I'm looking for something. See what oh I'm saying? Oh my God. Yeah. So if you ask your a yes or no answer, that's a very quick one. But anytime, like, where'd you guys meet? Well, actually, um, this is our first date, but I knew her from, see, and it opens up this whole thing. And then it turns into talkie talkie session. And then once drunk people are talking to you, it's really hard to get them to shut up. Exactly. So rhetorical questions, yes, no answers. Those are the kind that you want to ask because anything else, it's a Pandora's box. It's really hard to, to close. Right. And you know what? Comedy works on timing, you know, and, and shortening down your sentences. And when you give somebody mm -hmm. else a chance to take the stage and then talk, 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 you lose the flow. It, it's yeah. just gone and it's crazy. Enjoying this episode? Go check out Geekster, a dating and friends app for geeks that focuses on common interests as a way to make meaningful connections. Download today on the App Store or click the link in the description to find out more. Geekster, this is what happens when nerds collide. Geekster, available on iOS and Android. Well, let's get out of comedy a little bit. I'm curious about Sea of Idiots, the animated show that you did. I watched the episodes today. I thought it was great. I thought Thanks, it was man. a lot like Clerks. Um, mm -hmm. Oh, and, totally. And you reference that within the show. Like you literally say that in the one episode and then you kind of look at the characters, look at the camera, kind of yeah, like, we know what we're doing. Wall. Yeah. yeah. How did it come about? So I told you about that video sketch troupe I was in. Well, a buddy of mine that I had known years ago when I was in Florida in a band, we had kind of lost track of each other. He came across it on YouTube. One of our videos actually got pretty popular. It was raunchy. So raunchy. You want me to tell you what it was? Yeah, go for it. It's I, I, I took it down because it was so raunchy, but it's I actually also think it's really funny. The video was a woman talking to the camera and she goes, a lot of people think that you can't make abortion funny, but anything can be funny if it's funny. And then the next shot is, this is so bad. The next <laughs> shot is a baby doll being chased by a coat hanger to the Finney Hill music. <laughs> <laughs> Going back and forth. That's pretty good. <laughs> so, so stupid and so raunchy. Well, anyway, that got a lot of traction back in the day on YouTube in the very beginning days. And my friend in Florida saw it and saw that I was a part of it. And he reached out and messaged me and was like, hey, man, I'm actually, you know, I actually work on a computer program that does cartoons. My grandparents passed away and gave me their house. I got a whole bunch of money. Do you want to get together and work on a cartoon together? And I was like, yeah. And so he sold everything for a lot of money, moved out to Dallas from Florida. And we 
And by we, I mean mostly me. It was my idea to come up with the video store because we both worked at this video store in Florida. And the idea was, since we were both musicians, the idea was to also be like, you know, we're working the video store in the day, but at night we're in this band. Did you watch the the band one? Yes, dude. And the the and song, song was great. stuck in my head. Schizo Farmer. Is that what yeah, it Schizo is? Schizo Farmer. Yeah. Now, Schizo now, I didn't Farmer, write yeah. that song. He wrote the song. But it was uh, catchy and, as hell. Yeah, it had right. Like a blues rift. And then it goes yeah. into like a metal rift. And I was like, yep. I was like, this is awesome. Like, I, yeah, I was that jamming was pilot, out. That was our pilot episode. So that was the idea was that these guys are struggling musicians. And in the daytime, they work at this video store to have all these characters, which were all from our real life. Those were all people that we interacted with. And so we did that. Um, he moved out here. It was good. It was, it was getting, it was getting some, some traction. People that watched it, that found it, loved it. We had some really, really loyal fans that absolutely loved it. Then a contest came on from Anaboom. And the Anaboom contest was submit a five-minute original animated video. And the winner gets a pilot from Fox. Yeah. Wow. And so, uh, and I want to stress this. I want to stress this very hard. I did not do any of the animation. Okay. Mm. But it was my idea. And I did most of the dialogue. Most of the script writing was mine. The idea was to do a thing called Ghost Squad, which was a bunch of inept ghost hunters. And uh, yeah, it's, animated. Yeah. And so, but we were having a hard time punching it up. So this other comic in town, who's not here anymore, he heard about it and he was a classic bully, like a bull in a china closet. He was like one of those guys that would like see an opportunity and just glam onto it. He came in and he got in my buddy's ear and he started, you know, basically telling him that I was no good. Now, mind you, this is very early in the day and I would agree with it. But what I had was I had... 20 years of friendship with my friend and we had our, I mean, if you, you'd watch the video, our characters had good yeah, yeah, yeah. repertoire. And so you couldn't match that, but we ended up winning. Oh, we won, got a development deal with Fox, but here's the problem. He could only bring one person with him and he chose the other guy. Oh no. And so that was devastating to me. And then they took my idea for a show, which was our sea of idiots. And they did a pilot episode on their own with the two of them basically stealing my idea. But the problem was the two of them have no repertoire. And I never saw it, but a mutual friend did. And he was like, dude, it was awful. It was painfully bad. And they lost their development deal. Wow. So they didn't so, even use the ghost idea. They ended up taking the sea of They idiots. didn't use the ghost idea because that was my idea. So they... But Sea of Idiots is your idea too. So. Yeah, but they changed it. They changed it a little bit. It's, it's stuff you, like that happens all the time. Man. Yeah, it's it's a very Hollywood story where mm -hmm. you backstabbing and stuff. Have you yeah. talked to him since or no? No, no, I, I cut both of them out of my life. Yeah. But the the positive thing was he ended up moving back with his parents, blew through all his money. Dude, he was spending like $200 a week talking to a psychic. And the psychic had him what? believing that he was going to be this famous, like, Dude, it was insane. He would tell me, he's like, yeah, I spoke to my psychic today. And she said she sees castles in my future. And I was like, well, I'm going to live in a castle. She goes, no, you're going to work for Disney, like the Disney <laughs> castle. And he, this is a, this is the craziest thing, dude. He changed his phone number. So the area code was that of where Pixar is in California. Even though he was living in Dallas, he changed his phone number to be that area code because he's like, I got to change it now, man. Some of you live in there working for Pixar, you know? 
he was and, counting the money before it was ever yes made, yeah. and he dude he thought him and him and that dude thought they were gonna make it and they didn't now the good thing is the other guys you know he hasn't done anything either but my uh ex-friend he ended up having to move back in with his parents blew all his money and hasn't done anything else me i'm not like rich and famous or anything but i took that experience and it motivated me to because that's when I started taking comedy classes and improv classes at the exact same time. So I was performing at AdLibs doing improv, and then I was performing at Backdoor doing stand-up every weekend for like three years straight. Having that experience, Randy from Hyena saw me one night at open mic and was like, hire him as our new opener. And then that's how I started getting paid to do comedy. That's freaking awesome. I was going to say, and you had a lot of coals in the fire. You've done a lot of things like doing some research. I saw that, you know, you did stuff for the Assembly Brewing Company. You do the murder mysteries. Now you do burlesque shows like you always got a bunch of stuff going on when it comes to comedy or entertaining. I know it's not even just comedy because like you said, you do improv comedy, too. You're an entertainer is more what it is. Yes, I would say that I am more of an entertainer hosting. I love hosting. You know, I love hosting the burlesque shows. Yeah, an entertainer. That's a good one. I like that. Hey, everyone, it's just Duck jumping in here real quick to say thank you so much for checking out the podcast today. If you're enjoying it, head over to your favorite podcast app, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or iTunes, and give We Are Podcast Network a like. And if you get a chance, head over to our social media. All links can be found in the description. You can find us at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at backslash We Are Podcast. And with that, back to the podcast. Let's talk a little bit about Children of Dave, you know, because I didn't know that there was a backstory to you creating these creatures, these yes. children of yours. And, you know, I came upon this today, you know, and it's it's absolutely insane. So you had a friend who passed away. Well, he didn't pass away. He was murdered. Yeah, he was murdered. Uh, still still unsolved. Still unsolved. J.D. White, of course. Yep. Uh, and he was a comic, too. No, he was a, he was an artist. Amazing self-taught artist. He did a lot of work locally. The dinosaur. The dinosaur on Expo, yeah, on Expo yeah. Avenue Fair Park. That's his. And he disappeared. Couldn't find him. And then they finally found his body in the Trinity River. He had been decomposing for two weeks. So oh, they could not figure out a cause of death. We know who was involved, but she lawyered up really quick. We don't think she killed him. We think someone close to her killed him. We think it was a boyfriend of her, jealous type of thing. Oh, jeez. But yeah, man, it was brutal. I had a total meltdown, mental breakdown, almost lost my job. So I threw a chair in the stairwell and lost my mind, man. But it was, it's one of those things where he was the kindest, most sweetest person to a fault because he allowed really scary people into his life because he didn't judge anybody. And they took advantage of him, especially women. But it was the first time that I realized that bad things happen to good people and sometimes bad people get away with stuff. And that's hard. That's a hard lesson, man. Because growing up, you know, you live in this world where you think there's justice and you think the good guys win, the bad guys lose, but it's not the case, man. Life is just life. See, that's the thing. None of us are immune to it. None of us, none of us is going to go through life and be immune to bad stuff happening to us. And just sometimes it happens to people when they're younger and it's worse. And it was just awful, man. Absolutely awful. So loved. It was so weird at his funeral. It's such a Hollywood thing. It was sunny out and we're burying him. His caskets going into the ground and it started raining and there wasn't any clouds in the sky. Oh, that's wild. Yeah. It was so insane. So you ended up after everything was said and done and with all that terribleness, you ended up going to his house and getting some like 
dolls? Yeah, like... so basically he had, he had a, a studio, Expo Avenue, and we wanted to clean it up for his parents to come in there. So we're throwing away all his stuff, all his porno mags, which I took <laughs> and I used those in my first collage therapy project, which was I cut out all the eyes, all ones, all nipples, and I covered <laughs> mannequins with them. Because that was something my therapist at the time told me to try. It was collage therapy, taking things apart and putting them back together. That thing where you're focused, little tiny things to try to keep your brain from going And crazy. this is before you were diagnosed with ADHD? Yeah, this is before. <laughs> I can't even imagine how hard that yeah. is. And so he had all these broken toys, action figures. And so I started something I didn't realize what it was called back then. It was called kit bashing which is what they did in Star Wars to make all their spaceships, taking models apart and putting them back together. So I started doing that. And then just happened to be in, in Bishop Arts one time having dinner. And I saw this really cool gallery called Artisans Collective. Ted was the owner. Um, I forget his last name, Ted. Anyway, I walked in. I noticed it was only Texas artists. That was his bit. He had a, this incredibly unique gallery, but would only take artists from Texas. And so I asked him, I was like, hey, I, I make weird art. And he kind of was like, really? He was like, okay, whatever. He goes, bring it in sometime. And so I brought in like four or five and he looked at him and he said, you're close. You're very close to being sellable. He goes, but you need to work on your technique. They need to be sturdier. Because back then I just had a glue gun. They need to be sturdier and they need to be dirtier. They need to be like more lived in, grimy stuff like that. So I started experimenting with epoxy resins and staining and crackling and stuff like that. And it took about a year to develop the technique I use now. But I went back with my, you know, pieces that I had. He took one look at them and said, I'll take them all. Oh, wow. And boom, within a month, man, they were sold. And so he was like, keep on bringing them. And then Ted Matthews, that was his name. Great artist. Eventually, of course, like with everything cool, Rich white people come in and screw it up by gentrifying it. They gentrified Bishop Arts and the rent became too expensive. And he had, to, he had to close up shop. But luckily, Jason Cohen, who runs Curiosities, old friend of mine from my band days, he ran the bookstore Forbidden Books down in uh, Fair Park by where JD lived. Anyway, he asked me, he's like, hey, I heard because I, I never I ne only you only sell at one location. Uh, you never want to sell multiple. It's just respect to the to the curator. So I only sold at Artisans, but once that closed, Jason asked me, he goes, Hey, now it's closed. Do you want to sell at Curiosities? I was like, yeah, same thing, man. It sold, sold out. And then Jason and I now are, we've gotten closer and we now do all the oddities and curiosities expos when they come to town. And he always gets me in a booth with him next year. We're both going to do that one and the haunters convention, which I just did. And it completely sold out there too. So it's good, yeah. man. It's fun. It's yeah, fun. I was going to say, and your work is hard to describe to people uh, if you haven't Toy seen story. it. Toy Story. Yeah, uh, yeah. so you kind of feel like you're Sid from Toy Story yeah. a little bit, yeah, like a grown-up sure. Sid, and you're you're taking pieces, which I guess the piece that the article was focused on, oh, that's awesome. This, uh, this is actually a lamp. That's so lamp. cool. Yeah. Um, the piece that the article focused on was the baby doll head that you put the spider legs yeah. on and put the horns on, which came from, I guess, JD's uh, collection there. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was so cool that like you could see the beginning of like what would become Children yeah. of Dave. I still have that. that. That's the original one. I'll never sell it. So that started kind of the obsession of creating. And did you find catharsis through it? Did you find that it was oh, healing? Totally, man. Totally. There, there's something about especially taking things that were his that were going to be thrown away and giving them new life. You take a tragedy and you try to, and I bring joy to people, even though it's weird art, I still, 
people that like my art love my art. There's no, there's no in between. You either love it or you hate it and want nothing to do with it. <laughs> but the people that love my art, I'm bringing. So JD's tragedy is bringing joy to people, and that to me is is the best thing in the world. And then you find out more people were twisted in that sense. Like people walk around every day acting normal, and you find out they enjoy just these twisted, interesting looking fun as hell art pieces that are just so you you know what i mean Thanks. like and and it's your history of loving horror movies and just loving the macabre and just the crazy like you can see your heart and soul in your art and it, it's awesome dude thanks and man. and people need to go check it out instagram.com backslash children of dave to check it out or just if you're in dallas go down to curiosities and buy a piece so yeah. and you sell the pieces online too or only at curiosity well, i sell them online too but what usually ends up happening is i have like four or five pieces here in the house but I, I just sold one at Curiosity, so I've got to go replace it. So Jason's got a got an area for me. And the thing is, like, if you sell something, you better replace it with something else. Because if not, he's got to fill that space. So if you don't put something in there, he's going to put something else in there. So I'm always, you know, I'm looking around. I've got one, two, three, four. I've got four pieces right now. And so I've got to go down there and replace one of them. You know, I think it's also funny that your wife calls it you playing with your creepy dolls. Like, oh, I yeah, that's hilarious. Yep. I want to close by asking this. People who are looking to get into comedy or people who are looking to getting into being creative, whether it be music, be art pieces, doing animations, all the stuff that you've done. What would you say to them? What is the first step? And like, how do you really get into it? And what is your writing process like? So I'll answer the last question first. Writing process is life happens. I'm not a writer. I'm not funny enough to come up with stuff on my own. Life just happens. So when life happens, because life is the funniest thing in the world. There's truth in comedy. One of the lessons Dean had us do once was he had every day you write down three things that happened to you that day. And it doesn't have to be funny. Just things that happened. You were late. You got bumped into. You got yelled at. You ran a red light. Just things that happened to you. But as you start writing them down and you just do it every day, you're like, oh, that's actually kind of funny. Oh, that's interesting. And you start seeing that there's material in there. And so that's my writing process is life just happens. Uh, and do you ever sit down to write or do you just wait for those no. aha moments? I just and... wait for those aha I, I don't have, man, I don't have the patience. I don't have the discipline to write. Anytime I've tried to write, it's been awful. It's not been funny. And everyone's different. There's comics that write all the time and their stuff is brilliant. I'm not like that. I, life has to happen. The other day, you know, my wife and I, when we first got together, she knew I had like a crazy past. And she, and we, so we first started dating. She goes, you know, I'm not a swinger. So don't, don't ask me to be a swinger. And I was like, <laughs> okay. And I was like, well, listen, I don't like dancing. So don't ever ask me to dance. And she's like, okay. Well, the other day she goes, hey, there's a swing dance. <laughs> and i was like well if we're swing dancing then we're swinging yep <laughs> you know and so so that's something that, that that happened you know it wasn't something i wrote so yeah um what i would suggest again any art form you're doing take a class look at a tutorial you know look at what people do find somebody you love don't copy them but just watch how watch how they do it so like if you're doing stop motion like i do there's tons of tutorials out there. The other day, I, I, Bobby Frisky, my, my good friend and new boss, he sent me a tutorial, man. It was a simple little technique of you have a character, right, with eyes. Take a laser pointer and you point that laser pointer into the eye of your stop motion character. Now it looks like his eyes are glowing. So simple. 
You don't have to rig up a light rig. You don't have to have lights going into it. You literally point a laser pointer at it, you know? So it's stuff like that. And then just do it. That's the main thing, man. You have to do it. And it's going to suck at first. Like I told you, it took me a year to get to the point where I, my art, my stuff I had been doing was sellable. You know, it took me three years before I ever got paid to tell a joke. So it's going to take a while, but you just keep on doing it and it will happen. If you're good, it will happen. I always tell people this about comedy, like people that complain about not getting booked. And it, and it sounds kind of harsh, but it's true. It's like, if you're funny, you'll get booked. If you're a comic who's been doing comedy for four or five years and you're not getting booked, you're not funny. That's just the bottom line because clubs, bookers want funny people. If you're funny, you'll get booked. 100%. I agree and if you're, if you're a jerk, you won't get booked. <laughs> yeah. Or sometimes they do get booked. That, that they they do get booked if they have a following. But yeah. eventually what happens, I spoke to a very smart manager at a uh, very good comedy club in town. I'm not going to say his name. But he told me once, he goes, you know, comedy is like uh, an escalator. You're going up and then also you come down. And he goes, when you're going up as a jerk, but you're bringing in tons of people, sure, we'll book you. But when you start not selling out the club and now your career is going down, guess who we're not going to book? But if you're nice and you're cool and you're easy to work with and you're not selling out, we're still going to book you because you're easy to work with. Now, you might not get booked as much, but we're still you're going to we're going to work with you. But if you're that jerk that goes over and is mean, rude to the waitstaff and you're not selling out the room. Yeah, it matters. It does. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk to me. This has been awesome. Uh, Everyone go check out Instagram.com backslash children of Dave. You have another social media, but I couldn't. Yeah. If you go to Facebook, look up stop motion nightmares. That's going to be only my stop motion stuff. And then also really talk about, but you do a ton of stop motion. Yeah, I do a ton of stop motion. I've made a lot of music videos. I'm using it in my new job. I work in a marketing firm now. And so I'm pitching ideas for stop motion there, which is so crazy that I actually go to work and get paid to do stop motion now, which is amazing. It's awesome, dude. It's it's yeah. luck. It's when time and hard work finally meet and they met yep. and you got lucky. And luck. Yeah, luck. A lot of it's luck. Um, oh, um, TikTok, uh, David Jessup Artist. Right on. Well, thank you so much again. And thank you everyone for listening. David, thank you. You have a great day and we'll See talk you, buddy. to you soon. You got it, man. Take care. And there it is. Thank you again so much for checking out the podcast today. If you enjoyed it, head over to your favorite podcast app, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, and iTunes, and give We Are Podcast Network a like. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, you're going to love the other podcasts here on the We Are Podcast Network. We have We Are Bagoo, a video game podcast where we talk Atari to Steam and everything between. That's me and Dr. Ethan Eastwood breaking down all that video game lore and having such a good time. Heroes, Jeros, a Dungeons and Distractions side quest. Me and the boys were playing some D&D. You can start that one from Season 1, Episode 1. It's a blast the whole way through. And I hate being sober. Personal stories from epic people. I sit down with some of my favorite people of all time. We talk about their trials, their tribulations, and their journey this far. And finally, our new live video podcast, Camp Slash Horrorcast, where we're going to have a roundtable discussion about our favorite horror movies. That'll be available on Twitch and YouTube, streaming every Monday at 8 p.m. Check the links in the description to find out what movies we'll be watching. Also, check the links in the description for our social media. You can find us at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at backslash we are podcast network. With that said, thank you so much for checking out the podcast today.
please remember to support local comedy in any way that you can. We'll see you next time.